guys, and welcome to the Moms and Murder podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I'm doing okay. How are you doing? Why don't you tell us about your week? <laughs> I don't think I can tell you about my week without like starting it off with dramatic music and like lightning flashing in the background. And I don't know. It just... I don't even have words for it. My family has had the flu since last Friday. And so um, that's how it's been going. It's been a week with the flu with a family of four. Um, So it could be worse. We could be a family of five. Um, But (laughs) (laughs) it's not been my favorite week that we've ever had. But everybody is on the mend. We're doing well. We're recording this very last minute. Mandy's out of town and she's so gracious to have done this later because I didn't even have a voice two days ago. But so if there's any audio stuff going on where everything's a little bit different, we're just lucky to be here, lucky to be alive, lucky to be amongst living this week. Um, and so if it sounds a little different, that's what's going on. And if my voice sounds even weirder than normal, then, you know, that's what it is. It's the flu. Yeah. Blame the flu. <laughs> Not coronavirus or whatever coronavirus. I know I said that wrong. Although I was asked if I had been to China. Um, it's just the regular old flu. So yes, Mandy, it's it's going to be better. Next week's going to be better. That's what I think. Yes. Yeah. We'll be, we'll be back to completely normal next week. So this week we are discussing a case that has multiple victims. So we're going to start a little differently this week by first talking about the killer and his background before we get into the crimes that he committed. The murder that this week's killer is the most infamous for took place in Miami, Florida, and that is where we have chosen to Google this city this week. Miami is located in South Florida and has a population of 463,000 as of the 2017 census. We haven't talked about census in a while. I feel like I've been on a little bit of a census break, but 463,000 people does not sound like that many people from Miami, does it? That seems No, like, not to me either. Yeah, like Gloria Estefan... Gosh, I can't say any names this week either. That's like half of her band. There's so many people in that band. And (laughs) there's 463,000 people. It's not very much. Miami is also the only U.S. city that was actually major U.S. city, I should say, that was founded by a woman. At the time of its founding, there was a local businesswoman named Julia Tuttle who encouraged a developer to actually take the Florida East Coast Railroad and extend it down to Miami. And this expansion really helped create the modern Miami that we have today. In 1944, a local pharmacist named Benjamin Green invented what we now know of as sunscreen, saving my poor family and my ginger's lives, really. It started when he was an airman and he wanted to come up with a way for him and his fellow airmen to stop being burned by the sun. And he started off with this stuff called Red Veterinarium Petrolatum. And I thought it would be petroleum, but it's spelled petrolatum. Could be saying it wrong, of course. And while this jelly worked, it's thick and it's gross and it smells awful. So he later added coconut oil and that kind of created that scent and everything created what we now know of as sunscreen. Oh, wow. Yeah. Very thankful for him. My son is especially, he's not thankful for him, but he should be. In 1954, the first Burger King was opened in Miami. And in 1957, they introduced the Whopper and that put their name really on the map. So Mandy, sure, Central Florida is warm. We know this, but Miami is very, not very, it's muy caliente, not very, very caliente. (laughs) Miami holds the record for the warmest location in the winter in all of the U.S., averaging between just 65 to 75 degrees in the winter, not just 65 to 75 in the winter. 
but it may surprise you to know that Miami has never actually had a temperature over 98 degrees on record. Isn't that shocking? Yeah, I'm really surprised by that. Yeah, I was like, I was like ready for it to be like 105 or something, never over 98. So this got me thinking, Mandy. I keep in mind, people, I've been very, very sick. What are some things that we consider hot like Miami, but might not be as hot as we think? Does that make sense? I don't know. This is in like the middle of a fever that I started writing these. So here are the number. There's only a top four, too, because the fifth one I realized was even really too dumb for me. Number four, Mandy. These are things that we consider hot like Miami, but not as hot as we once thought. Any airplane when you're in the middle seat, that's always hot. You're like a thousand (laughs) degrees and you want to die. Number three, when you're in the DMV and you're number 643 out of nine infinity, that room feels a whole lot hotter when you're sitting there waiting for your number to be called. (laughs) Number two, Val Kilmer in 1995. (laughs) And number one, me, you, anyone, anytime you pass a self-checkout camera at Walmart after you've put on makeup and you leave the house and you realize you actually look like Bigfoot on the camera, you're not as hot as you actually (laughs) think you are. (laughs) That is my list. Mandy, please bring us back among the living. Andrew Philip Cunanan was born on August 31st, 1969 in National City, California, just outside of San Diego. He was the youngest of four children, and he spent the first nine years of his childhood in National City with his mom, an Italian woman named Marianne, and his dad, Modesto, who was also known as Pete, who was from the Philippines. Andrew's three older siblings were Christopher, Elena, and Regina. Andrew was raised in the Roman Catholic faith, and at one point, Andrew wanted to become a minister. As the youngest child, Andrew was very spoiled, and it was clear that he was the favorite of the four children. Andrew's siblings have said that Andrew was their father's pride and joy, and he really got whatever he wanted, and he had a sports car, he lived in the master bedroom, he went to private school, and many more things that his parents lavished upon him. However, Andrew's childhood was not really a happy one. Pete, a Navy hospital corpsman, was known to have a terrible temper. He was abusive towards Marianne, constantly accusing her of cheating on him. Marianne had depression and spent money as a means of coping, which led Pete to work extra jobs so that they could make ends meet. For a time, Andrew went to school in the Chula Vista City School District. He was an avid reader, and when he was in the third grade, he was given an IQ test. The test showed that his IQ was 147, which is genius level, and he was entered into the gifted program. In 1972, Pete left the Navy, and in June, the family moved to Bonita, California, where they would stay for the next 10 years. In 1979, Pete began working as a stockbroker, and in 1982, the family moved to Rancho Bernardo, California. From 1983 to 1987, Andrew went to Bishop Episcopal High School, which was a private school in La Jolla, California. In high school, he became fluent in French and Spanish and excelled in all of his subjects aside from math. Despite his high intelligence, Andrew only put an effort into the classes that he actually enjoyed, and the teachers and other students said they thought that Andrew felt entitled and that he acted like he had a lot of money when in reality he actually grew up quite poor. They said he acted like he thought that he was better than everybody else. Something his peers did like about Andrew was his openness about his sexuality. Andrew was openly gay, and he was said to have feminine mannerisms and voice patterns, which he fully embraced, and people, you know, that was just a part of him in his life. Right after Andrew graduated from high school, his dad left the family. 
According to Marianne, Pete lost his stockbroker job because he was caught embezzling over $100,000, which would be around $230,000 in today's economy from various companies. Pete fled the U.S. to the Philippines in order to avoid arrest, leaving his wife and four grown children behind. In the midst of his father losing his job, Andrew was just starting college. He studied history at the University of California, San Diego as an American history major for a year before he dropped out and also went to the Philippines. Some people say that he went there to follow his dad to try and find him there, and others believe that he went there as a missionary. Either way, though, Andrew would only end up staying for about a month before returning back to San Diego. There are a few details about Andrew's life from when he returned to the U.S. until when he started these killings. What's known is that Andrew worked as a manager at a thrifty drugstore in Rancho Bernardo and then as an office worker in San Francisco. Andrew enjoyed to date these wealthy men, and a friend said that Andrew only dated these men so that they would support him. Some people say that Andrew actually targeted these men for their money, and one friend said, quote, Andrew did his homework. He investigated and sought out millionaires. The men that Andrew dated would shower him with gifts, and they would take him on these lavish trips, and they would travel all around the world. And Andrew really played the part. He loved to be the center of attention. His appearance was always impeccable. He was dressed in the best designer brands, and he ate and drank only the best food and wine. All the while, he's dating these men who spoiled him so much, but really Andrew was quite a loner. He had tons of acquaintances, but no real friends. He rarely contacted his family, and he would really basically fall off the face of the planet and not speak to people for several months. While Andrew was popular and had many acquaintances, he was also a pathological liar. He constantly lied about who he was, what he did, and where he came from. He had many aliases, and no one actually knew the real Andrew. Andrew went by the name Andrew De Silva in an attempt to associate himself with an extremely wealthy family. He also went by Drew Cunningham and Kurt DeMas. He would put on a different name and persona based upon the people he happened to be around at the time. And in the research of this case, it became clear that no one really actually even knew the real Andrew. Dozens of people were interviewed about him and everyone said something a little different. The only real consistency was related to how he dressed and how he had a taste for the finer things in life. He had created a different character to use with each of his acquaintances, and there was always a lot of mystery around Andrew, and people often wondered how he got the money to dress so nicely and party it up when he was just this single guy. Some people said that he got it from his parents, while others made more wild speculations about another secret life as a drug dealer or a member of the mafia. What some people didn't know was that Andrew sometimes made money as a male escort in Florida and in California. Some people couldn't see Andrew as a killer, but some people had actually seen a different side of Andrew. As a teenager, he bruised his mother's arm and dislocated it. And as an adult, Andrew once bit his friend extremely hard on the chest, and he'd also grabbed one friend by the throat. Before the murders began, one friend remembers looking in Andrew's eyes and seeing something different than before, and it was like Andrew had snapped. In the mid-90s, one of Andrew's wealthy boyfriends was named Norman Blackford. Norman gave Andrew a $2,000 monthly allowance, which would be around $3,300 today, and he gave him an expensive car and took him on vacations. In 1996, Norman broke off the relationship with Andrew. It's rumored that Norman ended their relationship because he was tired of Andrew's nagging about wanting him to spend more money. 
And this is when things really appeared to go downhill for Andrew. He was no longer able to look rich in front of his friends, and he was no longer accepted by rich people, which was something that he really wanted in life, and that was really important to him. Without a rich boyfriend, Andrew was really lost. He cut his hair, he gained weight, and he stopped dressing nicely. He also stopped spending money almost as if his cash source has suddenly, you know, dried up. Andrew started living in a $795 apartment, which would be like a $1,300 a month apartment today, with a friend in San Diego, which was really a far cry from the places that he had been used to staying with his wealthy boyfriends. Friends said that he just really wasn't himself anymore, and they weren't surprised when Andrew announced in April of 1997 that he was moving to San Francisco because he was bored with his current situation. But Andrew didn't intend to go straight to San Francisco. He planned on going to Minneapolis first to visit some friends. He said he had business to settle with his friend Jeff, and he would also be visiting another friend named David for personal reasons. So Andrew left San Diego on the 25th of April in 1997, bound for Minnesota with a one-way ticket. And these two men, Jeff and David, would actually become Andrew's very first victims. And we're going to get into the details of what happened to them after a quick break for a word from this week's sponsors. As we are gearing up for our live show in Chicago on March 27th, I am really looking forward to the flight and the show, of course, but hear me out. Is there anything better than getting on a flight in your comfy clothes, finding a good movie, and opening up a bag of snacks? Sure, there are strangers and germs, but I don't actually have to parent anyone on the flight, so I call that a win. But more than a break from parenting and having comfy leggings, I'll be wearing my third love bra. Think of your third love bra like leggings, but for your chesticles. I won't have to worry about the straps cutting into my shoulders or the band pinching my back, because third love does bras differently. They are designed to fit you, not the other way around. Designed with measurements from millions of women, their bra styles are made to fit your life. Plus, every customer has 60 days to wear it, wash it, and put it to the test. And if you don't love it, return it and third level wash it and donate it to a woman in need. Take it on a flight, wear it to our show, change your name, drain your bank account, start a new life. Just make sure you bring your new third love bra with you because hands down, third love is the most comfortable bra you will ever own. Third Love helps you identify your breast size and shape through their 60-second Fit Finder quiz and find styles that fit your body. Over 15 million women have taken the quiz to date. Really, it's that easy. I didn't have to go search for a measuring tape or have some lady with a may-I-speak-to-the-manager haircut follow me into the dressing room. I just took the information I had about my current bras and answered basic questions like, are the cups too loose? How long have you had your current bra? And do the straps fall off? Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone. So right now they're offering our listeners 15% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash murder now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash murder for 15% off today. We are a few weeks into the new year and let's be honest, the resolution to be healthier is getting harder and harder to keep with each passing day. My diet of fruits, veggies, and diet Cokes just comes up short some days. What I'm really craving is something sweet, but not artificially sweet. Something that's quick and easy and satisfies that sugary craving. Well, guys, I found it. It's Magic Spoon. Magic Spoon is a new cereal company that has discovered a way to recreate your favorite childhood cereals with zero sugar, 12 grams of protein, and only three net grams of carbs in each serving. Magic Spoon is a hit not only in the mornings at my house, but also any time of the day. Magic Spoon offers four flavors based on the all-time classics, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and blueberry, plus a variety pack that lets you try them all. The chocolate flavor was hands down my favorite flavor. 
My husband's a cereal snob where he doesn't even want me to buy off-brand cereals at the grocery store, so I knew he would be a hard sell. Surprisingly, though, he thought it was great and has eaten a bowl every night for his pre-bed snack. Magic Spoon spent over a year working with the best food scientists and chefs in the world to recreate the taste and texture of classic sugary cereal, but without all the junk that makes them horrible for your health. So go ahead and flip on The Simpsons or Animaniacs and travel back in time with a delicious bowl of cereal. Your taste buds and aging body will thank you. Go to magicspoon.com slash murder to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our promo code murder at checkout to get free shipping. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. That's magicspoon.com slash murder and use the code murder for free shipping. And now back to the episode. So before the break, we talked about Andrew buying this ticket to go to Minnesota, one-way ticket, and this is really when things kick off in this story. This is whenever he really starts, he becomes a serial killer, really. Jeffrey Allen Trail was born on February 25th, 1969 to parents Stanley and Anne, who were both educators. He was raised in DeKalb, Illinois, along with his four siblings. Jeffrey attended the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis and graduated in 1991. He served in the Gulf War and ended up being stationed in San Diego. He left the Navy in 1996. While he was in San Diego, Jeffrey met Andrew and the two became friends. According to some reports, the pair may have been in a relationship. However, other reports said they were really just friends. The pair had this falling out allegedly over drugs as Jeffrey was very anti-drug and it was rumored that Andrew may have been dealing drugs. After the falling out, Jeffrey picked up and moved to Minneapolis to become a propane salesman, leaving behind his recent California Highway Patrol training. When Jeffrey moved to Minneapolis, he reconnected with an acquaintance that he had met through Andrew named David Madsen. David John Madsen was born on October 16, 1963 in Waterloo, Iowa to parents Howard and Carol. He grew up in Barron, Wisconsin with his parents and three siblings. David went to the University of Minnesota Duluth for his undergraduate and to the University of Minnesota Minneapolis for his graduate studies. He became an architect and began working for the John Ryan Company. David met Andrew in a bar in California in late 1995, and the pair became romantically involved. Andrew was really infatuated with David to the point of being really obsessed with him. Andrew allegedly even proposed to David, but David rejected his offer. The pair broke up because David felt like Andrew had this really dark or shady side to him. Jeffrey and David's friendship grew when Jeffrey moved to Minneapolis, and they saw each other regularly, although just as friends. On April 25th, 1997, David picked Andrew up from the Minneapolis airport. They went to dinner, and then they went out dancing. The next day, David spoke with his friend Monique, and she later recalled talking to David also on the 27th of April as well. On April 27th, Andrew left a message on Jeff's answering machine asking him to come over to David's house. On the evening of the 27th of April, a neighbor reported hearing weird noises in David's apartment where Andrew was staying. Jeffrey had made plans to meet up with Andrew on the night of the 27th, and it is believed that Jeffrey entered David's apartment at around 9.45 p.m. that night. A neighbor heard someone say, quote, get the F out, followed by thuds and walls shaking for about 30 to 45 seconds. The neighbor went to look in the hallway, but nobody was there, so they just went back into their apartment. The neighbor then heard running water coming from the apartment, which, you know, that you could speculate was perhaps the sound of somebody cleaning something up. 
The next day, Andrew and David were seen at David's apartment building walking his dog, and they were seen together multiple times, but David always looked really nervous and as if he was not happy to be there and was not really able to leave. It was almost like he was being held hostage. On Monday, the 28th of April, David failed to show up to work. And on April 29th, David's workplace contacted the apartment caretaker to ask them to just go and check on David. After all, he didn't show up to work for two days, and that was really unlike him. So the caretaker went to check the apartment and was met with the sight of blood on the floor and a rolled-up rug. They left and called the police to come check it out. When the police arrived, they discovered that there was a body rolled up into the rug, but it wasn't David's. It was Jeffrey's. Police also found a claw hammer with blood on it and a gym bag with Andrew's name on it. Inside the gym bag was an empty gun holster and a box of 40 caliber bullets, but there was no gun. Police looked at the caller ID on David's phone and saw that there was a missed call on April 27th at around 11.05 p.m. from a Jeff Trail. Police called the number and found that the call was from Jeff's boyfriend named John. And John said that he had last spoke to Jeff at around 9 p.m. on April 27th. And Jeff told John that he was going to meet Andrew at David's apartment and then he would meet up with John at around 10 p.m. But he never showed up to that meeting. The autopsy performed on Jeffrey showed that his time of death coincided with the time that his watch had stopped, which was 9.55 p.m. on the 27th of April. So at this point, the police issued an arrest warrant for Andrew for second-degree murder. On May 3rd, two fishermen spotted something on the shoreline of East Rush Lake, which was around 50 miles north of Minneapolis. It was the body of David Madsen. The fishermen called the police, and the police determined that David had been killed on May 2nd, the day prior to discovering the remains. Police found vehicle tracks near the grass area where David was found, and it appeared that the vehicle had pulled into the area, driven in a circle, and then drove back out. David had been shot twice in the head and once in the back. Two empty 40 caliber casings were found in the grass, and one 40 caliber bullet was found in David's chest. David's autopsy showed that he had defensive wounds on his hands as if he put his hands up to try and block the bullets. Police theorized that Jeffrey went to see Andrew at David's apartment and an argument ensued. Andrew then hit Jeffrey in the head with a claw hammer until he was dead. After murdering him, Andrew stole Jeffrey's 40 caliber gun from his holster, and police believed that David walked into his own apartment and saw Jeffrey dead and Andrew was the culprit. Andrew gained emotional support over David, and they both wrapped Jeffrey in the rug to make it easier to live in the apartment with a dead body. This is the craziest thing in the entire world to me. You walk into your apartment, your friend is dead, your other friend killed him, and now what do you do? You can't do anything. This guy's got, you know, he's controlling you, you're worried, he's walking you out of the house. Like, we know that other people saw them walking around. He can't say anything. Right. And you've got to just be thinking like, oh my gosh, well, I'm next, but when is it going to happen? You know, I can't imagine that kind of fear over days. Right, not, terrifying. Not a 10 minute, you know, conversation. This is days that this is going on. Right, yeah, it's definitely really scary. Andrew held David hostage with Jeff's gun until May 2nd when Andrew took David to East Rush Lake and shot him. After murdering David, Andrew took David's Jeep and headed to Chicago where he would kill his third victim named Lee Miglin. Lee Albert Miglin was born in Westville, Illinois on July 12, 1924. He grew up in Westville, Illinois with his coal miner father named George, his mother Anna, and his seven siblings. 
Lee went to the Gallagher School of Business, served in the Air Corps for part of World War II, and then earned a journalism degree at the University of Illinois. Lee formed a real estate development company, Miglin Beitler Development, in 1982, and this made Lee very wealthy. Lee married Marilyn, a model and cosmetic store owner, on October 29, 1959. At the time of his death, they were married for 38 years. They had two children and lived in Chicago. On the 4th of May, 1997, a little after 2 p.m., 72-year-old Lee was cleaning in his garage off Miracle Mile in Chicago when Andrew showed up. There were no signs that Andrew forced his way in, leading police to believe that either they knew each other or that this was a surprise attack. Lee was found with his hands and feet bound, his face wrapped in tape with holes for his nose, and stabbed to death with garden shears. His throat was slashed with a bow saw. It's believed that Lee was stabbed instead of shot because a gunshot would have been heard by his neighbors. Lee was due to pick Marilyn up from the airport that night, and when he didn't show up, she made her own way to the house. Marilyn arrived and found that the house was a mess as if somebody had been through it and ransacked it. So she called the police who arrived and searched the house and the garage, and police found Lee's body under a car. A trash can had been placed in front of the car in an attempt to hide the body, and when police searched the house for evidence, they found that Andrew had showered, shaved, and eaten in Lee's house before stealing a gold coin and leaving in Lee's Lexus. Wow. Yeah. The car Andrew had stolen in Minnesota, David's Jeep, was found around the corner from Lee's house. It's almost like even when he's committing these crimes and stuff, he still needs these nice things. He needs the gold coin. He needs the Lexus. He needs, you know, like all these appearances, like he's so obsessed, self-obsessed and obsessed with things that even committing crimes, he's going around and having the, the biggest and best of everything. Right. I mean, I feel like he was a little like full of himself too, because to be like committing these murders and stealing their cars and then like leaving these stolen vehicles at the scene of new crimes, like it's right. almost as like a game that he's playing with the police in a way. For sure. So it's not clear why Lee was actually targeted by Andrew. Some say that Andrew and Lee knew each other from Andrew's profession as a male escort, while others say that Andrew knew Lee's son, Duke, who was an actor living in California. However, the family insists that there was no connection and that this killing was completely random. Police theorized that Andrew may have found Lee's house at random because it was within a block of the nightclub that Andrew had been at the night before. Police issued a warrant for Andrew's arrest on the grounds of first-degree murder and armed robbery. Meanwhile, Andrew was in Lee's Lexus making his way to New York, where he would stay for a few days until he plotted his next move. Andrew didn't actually wait very long to strike again. On May 9th, 1997, just five days after murdering Lee, he murdered his next victim, William Reese. William was born on March 4th, 1952 in Vineland, New Jersey to parents David and Nancy. In November of 1978, William married his wife, Rebecca, and together they had a son, Troy. And this family was, they were devout Christians. In his spare time, William attended Civil War reenactments. He trained as an electrician, but didn't follow that career path. Instead, he became a federal employee at a national cemetery on Fort Mott State Park grounds in nearby Pennsville, New Jersey. On May 9th, Andrew was driving near Pennsville, New Jersey, when he took an exit and found his way to Fort Mott State Park, which was a secluded area that didn't get very many visitors. Reese was working in the basement of the cemetery office building alone, and Andrew entered the building and made his way to the basement. He must have been really quiet because Reese didn't turn around and was shot once in the back of the head. Then Andrew left, locking the basement door behind him. 
Reese was murdered, they believe, between 4.30 and 6.25 p.m. that day. When Reese's wife called around 5 p.m. and didn't get an answer, she called the police who arrived at the cemetery around 6.30 p.m. and found the body. Andrew left Lee's Lexus in the parking spot, and he actually took Reese's red Chevy truck. Andrew then drove to New York, where he stayed for a few days before heading to South Carolina. While in South Carolina, he stole South Carolina license plate tags off of a car in a Kmart parking lot and put them on this red Chevy truck that he had stolen. He then drove down to Miami, and on May 12th, he rented a room at the Miami Beach Normandy Plaza Hotel, where he stayed until he committed his final murder. While staying there, Andrew changed his appearance and tried to disguise his look, and he used wigs a lot to kind of keep things under wraps for himself. At one point, Andrew pawned the gold coin he stole from Lee Miglin, and this pawn shop took his fingerprints, and he even used his real name. On June 12, 1997, Andrew was put on the FBI's most wanted list, and a $10,000 reward was offered for anyone who could provide information that led the authorities to Andrew. So that would be like offering $16,000 in today's money. Which is not that much for this guy who's now committed three, what are we up to, three, four murders, and is just four murders, and just ready to kill the next one. Just there's no stopping in sight. So during this time, Andrew was living only four miles away from his fifth and final victim, who was Johnny Versace. And we are going to get into what happened to Johnny Versace after one last break for a word from this week's sponsors. I buy my cereal online, order my bras online, and even buy my razors online. So why not order my stamps online? Stamps.com not only saves you five cents off of every first class stamp, but it also saves you time, which is invaluable. We use stamps.com to help us connect with our listeners. Our hands might be cramping up from writing our thank you cards, but our legs won't be because we're not in the car. See how I did that? Also, have you ever been to the post office with kids? There are only so many times that you can apologize to strangers for your kids whipping them in the leg with the retractable belt before you throw your hands up in defeat. Stamps.com brings all the services for the U.S. Postal Service to you. Simply use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send. Once your mail is ready, just hand it to your mail carrier or drop it in a mailbox. It's that simple. There's no equipment to lease and no long-term commitments. Stamps.com is a no-brainer. As busy moms, Stamps.com makes our lives a little easier so we can spend more time doing what we love, hanging out with you lovely people. Right now, our listeners get a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage and a digital scale without any long-term commitment. Just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Moms and Murder. That's Stamps.com, enter Moms and Murder. Life comes at you fast, but when you're looking for counseling, minutes can feel like hours and hours can feel like days. You want help quickly, but how will you fit it in your schedule? Our problems rarely arise during normal work hours, so why is counseling mainly available during normal business hours? BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. Is there something that interferes with your happiness or maybe something that's preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp has you covered and at times that are convenient for you. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialized in issues such as depression, anxiety, relationships, trauma, grief, and more. You can connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist without ever having to leave the house. BetterHelp is secure, convenient, and professional. If you ever find you want to change counselors, you can do so at any time with no additional charge. Financial aid is also available to those who qualify. 
Best of all, it is a truly affordable option and Moms and Murder listeners get 10% off your first month. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love within 24 hours. Go to betterhelp.com slash moms and use discount code moms for 10% off your first month. Again, for 10% off your first month, go to betterhelp.com slash moms and use discount code moms. And now back to the episode. Before the break, we were talking about Andrew's trip across the U.S. and how he's now landed in Miami and is just a few miles away from where his fifth and final victim lives. Johnny Maria Versace was born on December 2nd, 1946 in Italy. His parents were Francesca, who was a dressmaker, and Antonio, who was a merchant. Johnny had three siblings, Tina, who died at a very young age, Santo, and Donatella. Side note, Donatella Versace is played on SNL by Maya Rudolph, and it's one of my favorite characters of all time. (laughs) Johnny worked at his mother's dress shop as an intern before moving to Milan in the early 1970s to work in fashion design. In 1978, Johnny opened his first boutique, Johnny Versace Spa, in Milan. In 1982, Johnny met model Antonio D'Amico, and the pair were together until Johnny's death. Johnny became famous and is said to be the person that really invented the supermodel. He was said to have bridged the gap between musicians and fashion. He was the first designer to tour the world with fashion shows. He also had celebrities witting in the front row of his fashion shows. He really changed fashion. He designed clothes for Elton John, Jennifer Lopez, Princess Diana, and many more. In 1994, though, Johnny designed Elizabeth Hurley's dress for the premiere of Four Weddings and a Funeral. Elizabeth Hurley was really an unknown at this time, but she comes out in this dress that's now known as the safety pin dress, has its own Wikipedia page, and the sides are held together with safety pins. And it's just this huge fashion moment. It's kind of like uh, what later, you know, when uh, Jennifer Lopez had the green, you know, that one dress that everyone yes. knows about. That uh-huh. was the Elizabeth Hurley dress. On July 15th, 1997, Johnny woke up at around 6 a.m., made some calls to Milan, worked a little bit, and then went to a nearby newsstand. When he was done at the newsstand, 50-year-old Johnny walked back to his Miami beach house. At around 8.45 a.m., Johnny was trying to unlock the front gate when Andrew approached him from behind. Andrew fired two shots into Johnny's head before fleeing to a nearby parking garage with at least one witness running after him for a while. And he returns to that stolen red truck that he had parked there three weeks ago. Andrew changed his clothes and left the ones he'd been wearing next to the truck, along with his ID, his passport, and other important documents before leaving the area on foot. Johnny's partner, Antonio, was inside the house when he heard the shots ring out. He rushed outside only to see the love of his life bleeding out on the ground. Johnny Versace was rushed to the University of Miami Jackson Memorial Hospital, where he was later pronounced dead. When police arrived at the scene, they found a dead white dove next to Johnny's body. A dead white dove next to a body is often a symbol of an execution performed by the mafia. So the dead bird only played into this theory that Andrew was in the mafia. But it was later determined that the bird was simply caught in the crossfire and it was nothing. There was no other weird you know, coincidence about that. Witnesses at the scene told police that the killer had ran into a parking garage. At first, police thought Versace had been murdered by a hitman. But when they went to the parking garage Andrew had fled to, they found the stolen red truck and realized that this was, in fact, Andrew who had murdered again. It is unclear how Andrew knew Versace. No one knows for sure, but there are some possible theories. A friend told the FBI that Andrew may have met Johnny while at an opera in San Francisco in 1990, 
and another friend said that Andrew was seen with Johnny at a club once. Yet another friend said that in 1992, Andrew applied for a modeling job with Versace, but was not successful in his endeavor. Either way, Andrew constantly told different people in his life that he knew and was friends with Versace. After the murders, Andrew sent multiple emails to news sources, giving them his location as well as confessing to the murder of Johnny Versace. The email said that he was in New York City, not Florida, and that his next victim would be someone big in New York. The emails were really taunting and said that he wanted to be a star and he was going to he was going to be one. He was going to make himself one. He also gave himself a nickname, which was the 40 killer, referencing the 40 caliber bullets that were used to kill three of his victims. Andrew also contacted a friend to help him get a fake passport so he could leave the country. On July 23rd, 1997, Andrew was on a houseboat in Miami, less than three miles from where he had been last seen at Johnny's house. The caretaker of the houseboat boarded the vessel and heard a gunshot and then fled and called the police. Police arrived and called the SWAT team to come in. They actually threw tear gas into the houseboat and waited for 12 hours before they went in and eventually found Andrew's body in the upstairs bedroom with the 40 caliber gun that he had stolen from Jeffrey Trail laying next to his body. There was no suicide note but an autopsy conducted on July 24th confirmed that his death was due to a self-inflicted gunshot wound. So something that was kind of interesting was that the houseboat's caretaker actually ended up receiving the $10,000 reward that was offered by the FBI. Oh, wow. There's no real official reason or consensus on what caused Andrew to go on this murder spree. There are a couple of theories, though. Shortly before Andrew left San Diego and began these spree killings, Andrew told people that he was HIV positive. He told an AIDS counselor that if he ever found out who gave him HIV, he would get back at them. However, the autopsy after his death revealed that there was no HIV or AIDS virus in his system. Another possible motive was that he decided to go after people that had wronged him, such as Jeff and David. Then Lee and Reese were really opportunity kills in order to get their vehicles. Andrew possibly wanted to kill Versace because he felt that Versace had somehow wronged him, though it's hard, again, or unclear if they ever did know each other. A third theory is that Andrew was really just a narcissist. He didn't like being told no, and he couldn't handle it when people didn't give him what he wanted. Perhaps he killed Jeff and David because he wanted something from them and they weren't willing to give it to them. It's widely agreed that Lee and Reese's murders weren't motivated by anything other than wanting their cars. Wow. Yeah. And one really creepy thing that many acquaintances told the FBI is that when he was annoyed, he would often say, I'm going to go on a five-state killing spree, which, yikes. Yeah, that's a very specific thing it to is. say. When people talk about, like this story for me, when people talk about like O.J. Simpson, like, oh, where were you when O.J. Simpson happened and stuff? I very much remember this going on. I was a teenager and I you know, whenever you have like false memories, like I can't remember, I don't know how much of this is true, what I'm about to tell you, but I have a lot of memory about <laughs> this story, but I can't remember if I watched it on like um, America's Most Wanted or something, but I remember this stuff going on. I remember a houseboat being involved and I remember Versace being involved. I didn't know who he was, but I knew he was famous and I knew this guy had killed him. But like, it was, it was another one of those stories. Like we hear so much about other serial killers, but really Andrew definitely falls into that category. He killed five people over several weeks. No real reason. Anyone could have been the victim. And it's amazing he got away with it for so long. I mean, 
Maybe because it was yeah. so random, though. You know, it. yeah, he knew the first people. But after that, it was kind of like he drove to a new city and was like, all right, well, I need a car now. And this is what I'm going to do. It's it's pretty crazy, though. Yeah. Well, I actually never really, um, you know, I, I knew about Gianni Versace being assassinated like that. But I actually did not know that his killer had killed several people before that. So, yeah, you definitely don't hear Andrew Cunanan's name come up a lot whenever you hear about serial killers, but he definitely fits into that category. Yeah, for sure. And I don't think at the time I knew until years later that there had been other people because that was the focus. It was Johnny Versace, this, you know, well-loved designer and all this. And it was such a big deal. And it was in Miami. It was in broad daylight. And they were, people were freaking out over where this person could be. But I don't remember until, like you're saying, very, very recently, probably within the five years that he ever killed anyone else because the focus was all on that, which makes me sad because there were these other real people who were victims of his way before, you know, not way before, but like in the weeks before. And just, it's all so unnecessary and just upsetting for all their families and stuff. So this was an interesting story. And this week, our story was researched and written with Haley Gray, our friend Haley Gray, who's so wonderful. Yes, I love Haley, and I'm so happy to have her help working on some episodes. Yes. So yeah, she's such a really good researcher and writer, and we just love her, and so we're happy to have yeah. her on our and, team. And um, Jess also helps write this. This was back whenever they were working on a show together, and so I want to make sure we also thanked Jess for her help in this uh, this episode. But Haley's going to be working with us. If we say it on this show, she has to stay around because... <laughs> How embarrassing yeah. for her if we <laughs> announce her and then she's like, I don't want to work with you guys. And we say, well, now people know about you. So that's going to be a problem. So this is how we really just like we, we've, we're we forcing your hand at this point. So thank you, Haley. We are super excited to be working with you and we appreciate it. Absolutely. Um, so are we ready to move on to last thing before we go, Melissa? I think you chose a couple of good questions for us this week. Yes. So this was one of those like what are we going to do? And then I happened to be on Facebook and saw that somebody put two questions together in our Facebook group. How wonderful for us. So um, this is Kay from our Facebook group. And she had two of them. The first one is your favorite coffee order from Starbucks or any coffee place doesn't have to be coffee. Thank goodness. And the other one is what's your favorite guilty YouTube pleasure? Mandy, do you want to start off with the coffee? Sure. So um, I love coffee, uh, but I'm super, super boring. I don't like anything fancy. Even when I go to like Starbucks or whatever, I pretty much just get black coffee, like plain black coffee. And that's it. I drink my coffee black. Wait, you get plain um, black coffee? Yeah, yeah, yes, I do. And that's just how I drink it, really. That's all I order. I don't get anything fancy. Sometimes if I am in the mood, like if I want to have like a treat or I want to like treat myself to something like sweet or whatever, um, I will sometimes order a caramel macchiato, but that's about as far as it goes with like fancy frilly specialty drinks. I just drink black coffee. That's all. That's all I want. Oh my gosh. This <laughs> is really upsetting. I had no idea. Um, are you a serial killer? Just I might be. I don't question. know. <laughs> I don't yeah. know yet. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. So I don't drink coffee. I The last time I had coffee, I dipped a donut into coffee and I thought it was disgusting and I was like 10. So I I really should probably try it again, but I hate the idea. I hate the smell. I hate all of it. So if I go to somewhere like Starbucks, if I'm forced because there's no reason I should be there, um, <laughs> I will get a strawberry frappuccino because I'm eight years old. 
and I never know what size and they always ask me and I always say medium and they always say, oh, do you mean this? And I'm like, well, then why are you asking me? Because we both know that's what I mean. I just mean (laughs) middle. I'm ordering a strawberry frappuccino. Clearly, I don't know what I'm doing here. Just please. So um, yeah, that's probably my order, which is so exciting. And it's always too sweet and I love sweet things, but even I'm like, I can't, I can't finish this, but I've been getting hot chocolate there a lot. Their hot chocolate's really good. Yeah. I don't think I've ever had um, anything that's like not coffee. Well, one time I did go to Starbucks and I had this like, it was, it was weird. It was like 55 things. It was like peach, green tea, lemonade. Like it had like 17 things, but it was like, it was okay. It was really too much going on. So I never, never did that again. But (laughs) I think my friend Rhonda got that and I was like, are you okay? This is like, yeah, things that don't even go together. It's like asphalt and then lemonade and yeah, it was too much. I'm like, what? Definitely too much. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) And the other question, and I can't wait to hear this from you because I know you're not a big TV watcher, but I do know you like YouTube, at least to some degree, right? To probably yeah. rabbit trails. But what is your like, what do you like to do when you're on YouTube? What's your favorite thing besides watching kids unbox things like our kids like to do, of course? Yeah, I will. I mean, you know, I'm definitely not watching more children unboxing more things. I have enough of that in my life, so I don't need to watch that. <laughs> but, um, exactly. I do look up like a lot of you know, I look up a lot of conspiracy stuff, like other people, like YouTubers talking about like different things. Um, And so I'll watch a lot of those. I do go, I don't really watch a ton of YouTube. I do like, I watch a lot of makeup tutorials because I just do. And then I get sucked into those and I just will sit there forever and watch them. And then never, I'll proceed to like never do my makeup like that ever. I just know how because I've watched so many videos, <laughs> but that's really oh, it, yeah. like, yeah, you'd be surprised. I don't. And I mean, I really most of the time when I'm pulling up YouTube, I'm doing it to pull up like um, a soundtrack of some kind, like music. So a lot of times when I'm working on the show yeah. or writing or researching, I will turn on. Um, I'm really big on watching or listening to film score um, music. So I'll oh. I have this one. Yeah. And there's this one. Um, um, there's a bunch of songs like two and a half hours long on YouTube and it has like it's, it has, like, all the ones I love. It has, like, the Forrest Gump, like, film score, and it has a bunch of really, really good ones, and it helps me focus and kind of get in that zone. But that's really what I use YouTube for the most. I actually don't watch a ton of YouTube. Um, I just oh, accept yeah. whenever I start going down, like, a rabbit hole, and then I will, you know, watch it for – I'll watch, like, everything on one subject or whatever. But, like, yeah, pretty that's much funny. just use it to listen to music. That's kind of what I do, though, as far as like if I'm having to not whenever I'm editing, because of course I can only listen to that. But if I'm writing ads or Google the city or whatever, I'll listen to um, instrumental of like songs I like, like 70s rock or something. Yeah. So I can't have the words going on, but I like to have the music going on. So that's always comforting. I like find myself and this is like every three months. And I'm not kidding. I do this all the time. I end up going on all the um, Lonely Island, you know, like. Sandberg, yeah, uh, Kiva Shape, all of them. I watch their videos. They're not um, <laughs> like the most like uh, rated G stuff, and they're pretty crazy. And I don't know why. I just have like an eighth grade boy's sense of humor sometimes, and I love watching those. I just will watch compilation videos of those, and then I watch a lot of. Um, I don't watch YouTube that much, but when I do, I I really will get like sucked in. I watch comedians, different comedians maybe I've heard of, maybe I haven't, or somebody's recommended and just watch a bunch of clips. Those kind of things I love using YouTube for. And I watch, there's one uh, makeup tutorial girl that I like, you know, the one that does, that had the baby hands that did the video and she does like the nineties makeup and I'm forgetting her name right now. She's really, 
I love watching her, like never to learn anything. I just think she's actually really, really funny. And she does a great job with makeup, but I just think she's hilarious. So I always like to see what her stuff is, but that's it. Or if people send me stuff, but those are like my favorite things to watch. And so basically we both listen to music and that's about it. We use, we use YouTube as Spotify apparently. Yeah, I know. And there's like totally no reason for that because I have like other means of listening to music, but I don't know. I don't know if, if film score like music is a thing on Pandora. I haven't even checked. I'm not going to. I'm just going to keep doing it on YouTube like I always have. <laughs> I know. I know. I always feel like a hundred though because I like pull it up, um, you know, if I'm somewhere. I'm like, I bet there's an easier way to do this. Like not just me looking up YouTube videos that a 12 year old put together of, you know, yeah, <laughs> I love rock and roll played <laughs> played by a cello or something. So I think we're good for the week. Reminder, we have a live show in Chicago that will be so live and so exciting and so lively. And we've sold a bunch of tickets. Very shocked by the number of tickets we've sold at this point. Completely surprised. We are blown away. So they're going fast. So if you want to get them, go ahead. This isn't like me trying to be salesy because I'm not good at that. But but definitely go ahead and check out the link um, to go ahead and get your ticket. We would love to see you there. If you're in our Facebook group, Mom's the Word, they're like pairing people up in there. If you want to go, but maybe you don't have anybody to go with, we have some people that are in the same boat. Please don't murder each other because while that would be great publicity for us, it would be really terrible for you and your family. Right. So, um, but if you, <laughs> you might be able to make a friend that way. It might be kind of cool. Um, it's a great group. And then uh, CrimeCon, our May 3rd, First through third tickets. <laughs> Why do I always screw this up? Eminem 2020, right? Eminem 2020, is, yes. Eminem 2020 for 10% off your standard badge. And then we're going to play the pr- promo this week for our friend, Tawny. And she had the uh, podcast called The Dirty Bits. And uh, she um, recently, her husband, George, passed away. And she rebranded and she has a new podcast called The Witty Widow. And we would love it if you guys would check that out. All right, guys, we will be back next week. Same time, same place, different story. Have a great week. Bye. My husband just died. Recent, right? (laughs) Or you're making jokes about it. Hi, I'm Tawny Plattis, the witty widow and creator of the new podcast feed, Death is Hilarious. When my husband and fellow creator of the Dirty Bits podcast passed away in November of 2019, I immediately fell into writing and comedy as a way to cope. Now, I'm traveling around the country to interview your favorite podcasters and artists on how they found relief from grief on my new show, The Witty Widow. The podcast is slated for release in 2020. Tune in for bonus shows now, like Monday Morning Maisel, where you can join Midge Maisel and me as we cope with the loss of our spouses and learn lessons about moving through grief with comedy. And also be sure to check out Entertaining Grief, a series where I talk about how watching and relating to movies and shows has been helping me gain perspective on and cope with the death of my husband. Search Death is Hilarious in your favorite podcast listening app or visit tawnyvoice.com slash podcast to subscribe and listen in. We're going to make it through this show. We're not going to get over this show, but we're going to make it through this show together. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode. You can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media. Please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much.